Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Wednesday the 15th of May 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we continue our thrall to Chapter 4, War and Revolutionary Strategy. We are joined again this week by Lexi of Swampside Chats and Sophie of Trans Trans Revolution. This week I have the new patron Dylan Sinnott to thank. The first Patreon-only podcast will be coming in the next few weeks, so if that floats your boat, or maybe you'd just like to show the podcast some love, you can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. When we hit 100 patrons, the Patreon-only podcast will be a fortnightly endeavour. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Now, this <laughs> week we have got, we're going to start, we're halfway through chapter four, War and Revolutionary Strategy. We're on to this part of the terminal phase. And that's the terminal phase of what? So this is the terminal phase of... Capitalism is in its terminal phase. That's why we're in a revolutionary crisis. And we're going to launch basically a revolution in a backwards country before the other countries can get on board and also have their own revolutions. So we have a nice pan-European, you know, block, or maybe a revolution of the peoples of the East. And uh, then we're going to take this sucker down together. Just what you've said there, Lexi, kind of sums up this first paragraph, except for explicitly this middle sentence here, where McNair says that this would have meant the strategy of patience was wholly superseded. So, like, we ditch patience now because, you know, the final crisis is upon us. Yes. And this had something in common with the, not like the nuts and bolts of the left strategy that we discussed in earlier chapters, but it has that character of a large, like, historical happening that bypasses the need for a strategy of patience, a ruptural situation. That's the only way you can really plug this into that earlier paradigm that he was building for the second international left right and center so i guess my question is as the center do we think at some point if conditions change drastically you know maybe say in like 15 years people are you know getting fed up because they're being treated like shit due to climate change and all that does this mean that we think at some point the strategy of patience will be superseded now's the time to do it now's the time to pull the trigger i think that's a very good point and i think the instinct of all political actors is to think oh geez i better act now or my time will pass so i think that's a real kind of a systemic problem with with the strategy of patience because i think it's very easy for leftists to always make a case that oh this time is different we got to act now, whether it's climate change now or World War One, So I, I, I think that's something that is an inherent danger slash flaw, the strategy mm. of patience. Yeah, because at some point, at least if you're going to take it in its like angles formation, that, you know, launching an offensive at some point is acceptable, then, yeah, certainly at some point, tactically, as part of a strategy of patience, you, you could have a, a like call for a rupture. But if you're doing the strictly Kautskyan kind, which Engels off, also signed off on, then... And Nicolas huh. Sarkozy, Sarkozy, <laughs> the French president, 
he wrote a book <laughs> called uh, Rupture before he got his elected. Wasn't that his big Is that right? political thing? Wow. Yeah. Ah, yes, the great theorist, Lenin, Kautsky, Sarkozy. Elaborating on the problem of the strategy of patience, potentially including a tactic of, you know, an offensive some, in, at some point in time. The question would be, you know, how do you, how does a strategy of patience actually work? Does it include offensive tactics in the right situation? If so, how do you know? How do you know when you're in the final crisis of capitalism? whether well, I think, you should uh, bullshit up. I mean, I think you were telling me about at some point Ingles is writing it uh, uh, strategically that you'd be defensive for the most part until the state attacks you. And once the state attacks you, then you could go on the offensive. And obviously there's other things to consider, but the state attacks you, you have kind of like the moral backing to win popular support. Whereas Even Calgary thinks it's acceptable in that scenario. I think and the so line think is not to jump is to wait until you have a large majority or, you know, 60%. And when you try to do something, if if people get violent with you, you've got justification and away you go. And that's the moment of when things happen. But you don't do it when you got 20% or you don't do it if you're the only country who's going to do it and then you're going to be in trouble. You've got to wait till everybody's ready. I think what Sophie's getting at is that even then there's, there is a situation that Angles is okay with that I don't believe Kautsky is, where you have about, you know, 60% or whatever and... You just go, ah, fuck it. Let's just go. Whereas for somebody like Kautsky, they would need the rupture with legitimacy and, you know, democracy to come from the bourgeoisie. Or, or I guess the rupture from, uh, you know, expression or, or representation or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Yeah, in the yeah. U.S., we'll, we'll never get 60% of Congress. That'll never, ever happen. That's just not, the system isn't set up for that. We'll be lucky if we get, like, two people in Congress, right? As far as the pure Kotsky and like, you know, wait till you have the democratic majority, implement the minimum program, then civil war, I don't think that'll ever happen. But I do think we can, and if there's no way to measure this easily without a, a, a legitimate democratic mandate, but if you do have popular support for a socialist party in a way where you could say you have something that looks like a majority at least, then you can go ahead and, and do the thing. I don't think we'll ever really get that proper democratic majority in this country. But we're going down a rabbit hole because all the scenarios we were discussing involve a majority, democratic, expressed majority in the legislature. I, I think also it's, you know, we shouldn't be trying to map everything onto American politics. We should be thinking. How does this affect about, me, Tom? I say, screw you, Yankees. Oh, my God. No, I'm joking. You're not technically a Yankee, then. Are you a Dixie? In no, no, I'm a, I'm a desert rat. A desert rat. I like the sound of that. One of the things this book does well is deliver Lenin's challenge to orthodox Marxism in a way where you don't have to take on every one of his positive maxims to agree with his criticisms. And I think in the United States, and with the issue of electoral majorities, there's plenty to say for Lenin. We go back to patience, I'm sure. We'll come back to it again and again and again. So let me just read this paragraph. This judgment of the international situation is, in fact, the hidden secret of the defeat's line for the world, world interperialist war. In such a war, it is an almost impractical line for the Workers' Party of any single belligerent country. 
But if the workers' parties of all the belligerent countries agitate and organize against war in the ranks of the armed forces, the possibility exists of fraternization between the ranks of the contending armies, leading to the soldiers turning their arms first on their officers and then on the political economic masters. So this is very important because apparently World War I and the Russians were defeatist. What would that mean if none of the other working class parties of the other armies were, were not being defeated. It would mean Russia would just get invaded and get stomped on. And like, so that, that's, that's not a line for anybody who wants their own countrymen to get, or their own people to get smashed up. So it only works if everybody's doing it. This is kind of what uh, McNair is really getting to in this chapter is like, when is defeatism a reasonable thing? And he's making, it's in this type of scenario that, you should be defeatist. I think part of the problem with the German SPD is that they weren't defeatist. And so Russia was kind of forced to stick in the war, if I, if I recall correctly. The uh, February regime refused to end the war. And even a lot of people that you would have expected to go along for the February revolution opposed just the overthrow of the Tsar, often on the grounds that, oh God, this is going to fuck up the war effort. We're going to get destroyed by the Germans. And you had people like, uh, I think his name is Georgi Plekhanov. Plekhanov is the, the founder of Russian Marxism, is often called the father of Russian Marxism. You have people like, you know, Petr Kropotkin, who's a fucking anarchist for Christ's sake, going along with the war to the point where they were annoyed by the February Revolution. This was a going concern. And the fact that, there is a revolution inside Russia and not in other places, uh, or you know that, that didn't pop off as hard in other places. Yeah, that's exactly the effect it had. Some people think that Lenin was brought in on a train by you know German agents, but then they just assign the whole revolution as a foreign plot or something because of the way it you know demolished you know the, the front line for the for the Russians. Not that they needed any help getting demolished, but anyway just nationalist logic and it's exactly what you're getting at here there was a russian revolution and there wasn't really a german revolution he underlines uh, that such a line assumes that the mass workers international exists and that its national sections can be made to follow a common defeatist line i think that makes a lot of sense if there is an inter inter-imperial war you've got to get all the working class doing the defeatist line because if or, unless if one of them does it it's not a strategy for revolution, really. It's a strategy for defeat for one of the countries, the one that has the revolution. That would be it. Do you want to read this, this bit here, Lexi? Let's see now. Sure. It also pinned Lenin's and his Russian co-thinkers' willingness to gamble on the seizure of power by a workers' party in a peasant-majority country. It justified the extremely sharp split line in relation to the right and center tendencies in the international socialist movement. And it supported the explicit conception of a more or less militarized workers' party adopted in 1920 through 21. This is getting back to those 21 conditions that Lenin laid out in the common yes. turn, all these communist parties should join. And the reason why they were all designed in such a top-down militarized structure was that they thought this final war was coming yeah you the know? communist party is is a party of civil war international civil war so i i think this this whole paragraph here is good 
This is one of my favorites. I think I may have read this in the intro. I quoted it at a former comrade of mine, I believe. I argued in my 2004 series on imperialism that this idea mistook the crisis of British world hegemony for a terminal phase crisis of capitalism. The common turn was in fact already retreating from its full implications by mid 1921, but the common turn leaders clung to it and Trotsky clung to it till his death. They did so because for the Russian leaders, it was their only hope of salvation. If the revolution in Western Europe or that of the peoples of the East against colonialism did not come to their aid, they had betrayed the hope of the socialist revolution as thoroughly as the right wing of the socialists by their actions in 1918 through 21. Cheka, suppression of political opposition, suspension of Soviet elections, strike breaking, Kronstadt, and their theorization of one party rule of the militarized party as a necessary aspect of the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's a burn. Yeah, it's a serious not, burn. You know, Certainly not based, an endorsement of the Soviet Union, for sure. It's a, it's a massive critique of Lenin's strategy. Yeah, it seems like there are a lot of Leninists that have some kind of, oh, we have critiques of this and that about the Bolsheviks and critiques of this and that about the 21 conditions. But I really think if you take this on, how can you be a Leninist? You know, like, how can you systematically take on Lenin as a revolutionary role model, you know, other than like saying, yeah, I didn't want the whites to win in the civil war. Leninism is kind of like a, it's a reactionary backwards looking take on Marxism in that like you take these ideas from Lenin who, as we admitted last time, he was, you know, a brilliant strategist and trying to apply them exactly in a modern context or in a context where it doesn't make any sense. In reality, they were wrong. Like the the falling apart of the British world hegemon, it wasn't the death of capitalism. The fruits of that are that the Soviet Union doesn't exist and China is a capitalist nightmare now. To me, it seems like, you know, you can you can learn important lessons from Lenin, but you don't have to be a Leninist. And that's where a lot of people make a very easy mistake of taking on too much of Lenin and thinking that just because somebody's critical of them, they don't want to learn from the 20th, 20th century. I, I mean, look, there were definitely like dictatorial and authoritarian and militaristic kind of traditions in socialism before Lenin and, you know, the socialist parties, even before Marxism, you know, there's, there's a sort of organic kind of outgrowth from revolutionary activity towards this militant party form. But to openly theorize a dictatorship of the proletariat as this like military apparatus over the proletariat, like the damage to Marxism, it's, it's like incalculable. You can't think of a worse, I don't know, like that's, that's a pretty deep butchering of the character of Marxism. And, it, and if to the extent that there is Leninism, that seems to be one of the most important things about it is the nature of this question of the class dictatorship. And I know that this wasn't Lenin's intention, but it is certainly what happened. If you were going to say that Lenin was a great strategist or even a Marxist, surely the thing that would point them towards the system becoming like final crisis would be a rate of profit problem. And I'm just looking up here. This is the UK rate of profit from 1855 to 2009. Now, 
look at it around 1911. It's up around 19%, 20%. Not far different than it was in 1871. Like, why would you think that a point is terminal versus another point? A bad analysis. Because these inter-imperialist wars happened in Europe every 30 years at the time. There was wars between France and the Prussian-French War in 1871 and blah, 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 blah. This is the danger with like people thinking this is the final crisis. Like I'm sure people will think now that the the climate crisis will be the final crisis or something else. But like capitalism can rebound, blah 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 blah. blah. I just think well, it, it points towards. Rebound, but but, it, but Sorry, capitalism that, that, doesn't, doesn't that, have to have the CO two that it currently has. You could have a green capitalism. Well, you know, it's possible. It is possible. I, I, I suppose. If, they, but, if it is but, possible, but, but, they'll do it. You're arguing against a different part of the climate crisis. You, you have a different kind of climate skepticism than I'm used to in the United States because our people are a bit backward on that. I guess, you know, like, God, look at that. Look at that downturn. If you didn't know any better, you know, if you couldn't see the data ahead of you. Yep, this is it. This is the final crisis. This is, I guess this is why people what don't downturn, like the, the, the downturn, downturn around 1911. Yeah, but look at the statistics. That one at the bottom is like 1918. That's the end of the war. So you're talking about it being in 1914 and, you know, in the middle of a war, just a bit of a crisis. You know, it's far from it's the know, lowest it's it had ever been. The end. But again, just knowing what we know now, it's far from the end. I, I, I don't think I'm fundamentally disagreeing with you, Tom. It's just like if that's where you were in the world, if you cover up the rest of the graph and you think, oh, God, you know, this is it. The the numbers have been going down for five years now. It's the lowest it's ever been. But like, look at yeah, look I'm, at eighteen seventy nine or eighteen ninety one. They're as low as nineteen fourteen. At nineteen fourteen, it's about the same. Halfway down that drop, oh, the, the spike half, up. That's probably nineteen eleven. That spike and that middle is probably about nineteen fourteen. Nineteen fourteen would have been the same as in about eighteen ninety three, and probably the same as around eighteen eighty. Not far off about eighteen seventy one. So if you think about it, it's been bobbling around the same place for about 40 years. And they've had wars between different countries all those times. It just strikes me as in like, really, you've got to be patient at this stuff. Because if they didn't do that bullshit, by 1940, they could have had 60% commies and then you could have had your fucking revolution. With hindsight. Okay, I see what you're saying. Like, what you're, from that position, the data wasn't determinate enough. To, to be like a scientific input on like a revolutionary scenario that if you're looking for the the terminal crisis of capitalism nothing about this chart screams terminal crisis of capitalism correct all that happened at that time was there was inter-imperialist wars which have happened I, on and off all the way through history and it doesn't dictate that the the system itself is is gone on the way down because it obviously wasn't well, I, I agree with you that it wasn't. There was a sharp dip that was underexplained, and we can only, they could only expl really explain and understand like through through time, right? And I guess this is the problem of doing some brand of scientific politics, right? It's political decisions often ha have to happen in like split seconds, and scientific conclusions takes about this long. <laughs> it takes about a hundred years or something to make sense of that. I Go think on. I stand by my my kind of initial reaction. And if I were alive at the time and saw yeah. like yes, like the level with that in nineteen 
14 was probably roughly the same as a lower point in the late 19th century. But regardless of that, it was dipping pretty quickly. And seeing that in interperialist wars, yes, the wars have been going on forever, but World War I was quite unique. It was a, a bloody mess. You know, factories of death, as McNair put it. Like, I'm not, I agree with you ultimately, but we do have the hindsight. And I think that's the important key, is that we don't live in 1914. We live in 2019, the year of our Lord, right? So we have to take these things critically and not just be defensist of these problems and these mistakes and this short-sightedness. Ultimately, it doesn't matter how justified they were or weren't in thinking that, it, that capitalism was in its terminal phase. We know now that they were wrong and that the damage it did to Marxism was incalculable. You know, you could say what you want about them supporting national liberation or whatever. If that's all you have to praise the Soviet Union on, you don't have much because I think colonized people would have fought for their liberation without, with or without the Soviet Union. What? Without mustache man? How, how could they find freedom without such a bushy mustache? It's hard to believe, but it's true. It's true. Look at the uh, Irish Revolution. You know, it's, it's plainly obviously true. Look at the, you know, the Irish were one of the first to fight and win in colonial freedom. So, and that was, what, 20 years before Stalin got really going, you know, or at least 10. One thing I'd like to say, nobody made the case that the crisis of capitalism, the end of capitalism was World War II. Who ever heard of, like, everybody saying this is the final crisis, World War II? Has anybody ever Trotsky. heard anybody say that? Uh, Trotsky was. Yeah, yeah, it's Trotsky. Yeah. Listen, a lot of communists or left-wing Leninists just copied and pasted Marxist politics from World War I to World War II. Actually, this analysis is great because it deals with that tendency. What we're, what we're seeing here is like these inter-imperialist wars, they just, they happen regardless. Maybe it is a function, but maybe not so much a function of the capitalist system. Inter-imperial rivalries happened before capitalist markets were around. So like, it's obviously not a purely a function of capitalism. It's also a function of just other power battles. But the thing is that if, if, you, if you shift early out of idea of strategy of patience and you, you go for this final balls to the wall, like the, these things here, the check it, the suppression of political opposition, strike breaking, Kronstadt, all this stuff, one party rule, the militarized party, blah, blah, blah. That's just going to happen. That's a function of it. You Once you militarize, once you decide this is it, that's going to happen. So it shows you like the danger of jumping before you should jump. This kind of reminds me of discussions of like a militarized democratic republic that McNair was talking about earlier, where you have like a kind of like basically a form of universal conscription under dictatorship of the proletariat. I think if you can't at least do that, if you need some kind of body of armed men over and above the proletariat, then you've already lost, in my opinion. Right. Like, that's the key thing. Is if like if the working classes that feel so threatened that they're willing to them themselves become the body of armed men who are not standing over and above the proletariat because they are the proletariat. If you're not, if you don't have a mandate for that, you, you shouldn't do it. It's as simple as that. That if you do try to form a revolution before then, you're either going to end up in the left wing having some kind of utopian statelessness that just gets crushed, or you have, uh, you know, the Stalinist problem of anti-democracy and Cheka running around 
pulling young women off the streets and shit. You know what I mean? Like, you either but, die a hero or you live long enough to be a villain. Like, yeah, isn't that's that where it. this comes from? This is like, that's the shortcut. This kind of like short-term thinking and a, a bias against building up some kind of proletarian democratic institution is what forces roles for elites. There is an, a, a role for an enlightened minority in this utopian situation because that shit's not going to work. And so you're going to have to fall back on what exactly? We, we've kind of done that bit. I think he's going to get on to state war and revolution. I like this very first short paragraph, which kind of really gets to the crux of it. It is not the capitalist class, which is the central obstacle to the emancipation of the working class, but the capitalist state and the international system. I like that. Yeah, the international state system is itself part of the bourgeois order. And then he goes to this, this killer line here. And a state is, at the end of the day, an organized armed force. <laughs> There's no one around the bush with McNair here. He's really going for it. The state's of particular classes are tied to those classes by the forms in which they are organized for the working class to take power. Therefore, the existing capitalist or pre-capitalist state has to be smashed up. And at the end of the day, this means that the coherence of the existing armed forces has to be destroyed. See, this is where the contemporary Marxist, the one that is steeped in esteemed critical theory, like the works of Louis Althusser, you know, will snarf, ha <laughs> ha. You think the state is but a body of armed men? Certainly, it is much bigger than that. It is anything that produces ideology. It is everything that reproduces the present state of things. And then I've even heard this taken as far. It's bastardized, of course. This is the straw man. That the state is you. The state is me. Who could possibly oppose it? People have used Marxist state theory to draw out, I mean, virtually everything into being the state. But what I love about classical Marxism, what I love even about Lenin in this case, and the analytical Marxist tradition that McNair, kind of this you know heterodox version that he represents, is how clear they are in what the state is. It is a body of armed men. Yeah, I think in its most basic form, that's what gives it its power. You know, it's nearly Maoist. It's close to yeah. Mao, isn't it? It, depending on how literally you take, oh, the state is only a body of armed men, you know, everything else is, isn't even part of the government, you know, like, depending on how literally you take that, then yeah, we could get to Maoist territory. But the, the fundamental structure of the state, you might say within the state, the base itself, you know, the thing underneath all the legal fripperies and property, like law, the power relationships underneath the superstructure. It's interesting, Lexi, you put me into the revolutions cast by what's the guy's name uh, mike duncan mike, he, i'm listening to his volume eight at the moment which is the paris commune one really damn interesting and he made like some kind of kind of pithy comment in rock paper scissors of you know revolutions an armed an army always trumps the constitution right and that's what he's trying to get at here it's not like the constitution has its powers. It's basically the base is the army. Whoever has control of the army, they get to determine what the state is or is not. And uh, later on in his series on the Mexican Revolution, he describes a constitution process as you know the most one of the most radical political documents in the history of Western civilization. He says about the 1917 Mexican Constitution that would only be you know 
outdone by the Weimar and Bolshevik constitutions. He notes, you know, that a few of those very radical clauses would simply kind of be avoided or, you know, like not really obeyed to the letter of the law. You know, that's one of my favorite examples for, you know, the difference between law and the power relations under law. Everybody really that's dealt with a police officer in person knows the difference. Isn't it that you and Charter on human rights, isn't there a whole section mm. on economic rights that's just ignored? No one imp implements it. You never would, ever hear anybody talk about it. Yeah, arguably the UN isn't even doesn't even really have the character of a state because these things are so spurious. Oh yeah, yeah, it's not a state. But I was just talking about. It doesn't really matter if it's written down. It depends on yeah, the power behind the implementation and force. Well, one wonders in the United States if we did get a second Bill of Rights in the forties, you know, an economic Bill of Rights, would the situation look similar? Okay, do you want to try the next paragraph there, Alexi? Lenin's judgment expressed in defeatism was that the war, because it was unjust and predatory, and because it showed imperialist capitalism coming up against its historical limits, offered the Workers' Party both the need and the possibility to destroy the coherence of the existing armed forces through anti-war agitation, and thereby to take power. The need was there because the war in itself involved the mass blood sacrifice of workers. It was also there because any war in which serious forces are engaged and in which the international standing of the belligerent state is at issue reshapes politics around itself. The class struggle therefore necessarily takes the form of the struggle against the war. This is not true of all wars, colonial counterinsurgency operations, etc., reshape the politics of the colonial country, but do not necessarily reshape those of the imperialist country. So the, and the possibility was there because war was unjust, predatory in character, and, then, and therefore tended to lose political legitimacy as it went on. You know, like he's making the case here, he's explaining why and where it'll actually work. Yeah. Essentially. But it was a highly okay. contingent strategy. Based on... The, you know, what was happening in World War One, Which is what any good Marxist would do. Pay attention to what's going on around you. It's weird, like, is McNair making the case that Lenin was correct here, even though he's saying he was incorrect about actually trying to ditch patience? Yes. I think McNair is saying that the strategy of defeatism abstracted from the rest of Leninism, but applied in the historical context of World War One was correct. But the ditching of the strategy of patience, I think, is where Len uh, where McNair takes issue. The implications of that kind of lead to a very unpopular conclusion, which it's as far as I know is missing from this book. And the implication is that like maybe October they weren't ready for the October Revolution, and that is mm -hmm. I'm loath to even say it myself. But if that's if if the if ditching of the strategy of patience was the wrong idea, you know, it doesn't mean you don't ever have a revolution. A socialist revolution in Russia, but it does mean in October of 1917, maybe it was a bad idea. So he's saying then that in a war like World War One, where things were lined up correctly for the working class, defeatism is a good strategy. But specifically in this one, it's not really a good strategy because things weren't ready. So it's kind of a moot point. Well, the, the gamble, I mean, to be more a little bit more charitable and clear, I guess. The gamble was that, like, that the strategy of defeatism was gambling that the socialist parties and the other belligerent countries 
would also be engaging in a strategy of defeatism and would therefore also eventually have their armed forces turn on their officers and turn on their political economic masters. And if that happened, we'd be having a very different conversation now. And in fact, that, you know, abandoning the strategy of patience and defeatism would both be vindicated if that is what happened, but it isn't. So maybe it's a bit strong to say that October was a mistake. I don't know. It's hard. It's it, it, McNair's walking a really fine line here because it seems to me, looking back on it, it seems obvious that Germany wasn't going to play ball, or at least, you know, the people who split the Bartasis League didn't have the popular mandate and were in fact being maybe too offensive. Maybe all of it was wrong. Abstractly, in in the context of World War One, yes, defeatism made sense, but concretely how it all played out nobody as far as i know nobody else was really doing as much as russia was to support this defeatist policy and to uh, agitate in armed forces i could be wrong about that but from what i could see didn't seem like the spda was really pulling their weight now tom when you interviewed mcnair on another episode of this show he seemed to indicate some optimism about what fraternization could have occurred or what sort of acts of subversion could have picked up in the German military should the Bolsheviks have had not gone with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And he brought it up in the, in the context of the anti-democratic machinations the Bolsheviks pulled at that time, which made me think he is sort of sympathetic maybe to a relatively unpopular line that they should have obeyed the democratic mandate and continued the war and conducted it as a sort of, you know, red jihad to like spread the revolution right then. Yeah, um, he mentioned this they should have red army to the German border. Yeah. Like in the historical context, this was almost unthinkable. But as a matter of Marxist logic, it is pretty much the only way that the October Revolution was really defensible. In that context specifically, of defeatism, that actually probably would have been the best thing to do. That is an unpopular opinion even to this day, but I don't know, I'm just kind of like, think of like a hypothetical scenario. You get the Red Army, the German border, and you have the soldiers kind of put up like a white flag and walk up to the, you know, other soldiers be like, hey, maybe communism you know like maybe we can maybe <laughs> maybe you can go and kill your officers you know this is I don't during think, you know trench warfare i don't think they're going to be allowed to walk i, I mean i'm being kind of silly trash. but you get what i'm saying you know I, I i do know what you're saying but this makes a lot more sense that that possibility makes a lot more sense before the kind of mechanized warfare of world war one but Fair. yeah i I think there was an occasion at some point in World War One, and it was mythologized as a as Christmas Day. Tom, you were telling us about Paul McCartney pipes of peace. Everybody, Paul McCartney pipes of peace. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah, or the you know that's the the pipes of peace scenario. Basically, that would be the the strategy being hoped for, and it's made very difficult by, from what I understand, it was the soldiers in particular who pushed outside of the capital and inside of the capital for the Russian Re- for the October Revolution and for the February Revolution and that in the case of October half the reason they overthrew the provisional government for Soviet power was because there was no way that they were going to end the war so it is a tremendously difficult scenario basically some of the you know the vanguard of the October Revolution 
their will to end the war would have to essentially be suspended while maintaining something like a democratic army and pushing forward, a, you know, a truly dangerous gamble to, instead of, you know, taking a humiliating, you know, treaty of defeat, just so that you can get your own house in order, like literally extending people that already want to go home and have already overthrown like two governments to try to end the war to go as hard as possible at a, at a goal that seems, you know, it's, it's like, like messianic, like there's, there's something incredibly manic and desperate about it, which I think, you know, there, there are crazier things that happen in history. I'm not saying that this is all totally stupid, but I have to drive home how, how desperate uh, a, the likely situation of victory is. That's not to condemn, but this is the only possibility, really, for the October Revolution to turn out. If you only had one shot, like one <laughs> opportunity, would you take it or would you let it slip? Have you not seen that film like 300? I, I thought 8 Mile, but yes, 300 will work too. Either that one or what is it War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise? You know that boo and he's getting sucked up into the alien and then he gets a grenade and, and he like lets it go and <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, brilliant. Obviously, they were they they were going for uh, Bukharin's military strategy. Let, let's see if we got this straight because I'm still trying to pin down exactly what McNair is trying to say in here. He is saying that defeatism is a good strategy in given circumstances. I don't know if he's saying it is correct in 1917, whatever the First World War, because the socialists in the British army and in the German army and in the French army wouldn't have actually been strong enough to actually implement it as a strategy. But notwithstanding that, the strategy is sound if you do have proper socialist communist support in the warring imperialist army forces. Am I correct? I think so. The main thing that he thinks is correct at base is this question of state. It's the last paragraph in this little subsection. Underlying the defeatist line, then, is a strategic understanding that in order to take power, the working class needs to overthrow the ruling class's state. That is, to break up the coherence of the state as an organization of armed force. So, no matter what you can say about Kautsky, you know, like, this was not on the table with, you know, the Kautskyans. This insight of Lenin's, for the reasons, you know, talked about in the rest of the book, Kautsky's... Uh, I mean, that's just a long-ass question. That's a rabbit hole in itself, Tom. The, the short <laughs> answer is that the, the center, the Kotskian center was too aligned with the right. That's why it wouldn't work. Yeah. As in, they, they didn't actually try and infiltrate the army. No, I mean, they were in the army. They just, like, ended up... Or, or, oh, wait, that's a good question, actually. Anyway, <laughs> I, I don't have a short answer for that. Like, it seems yeah. like, regardless of whether or not there was socialist party members in the army, they weren't actually trying to agitate anti-war there was not enough, at least, as far as I could tell. I, I, I honestly don't know, but from what it what's being said here, it doesn't sound like anybody else is really trying to do the strategy, the defeatist okay. strategy, other than Russia. And like what, the early Kautsky, right, has more of a sense that implementing the minimum program would smash the bourgeois state. By the time you get to the later Kautsky, he is so spooked by the Russian experience that he, he seems more resigned to having to work within 
the structure of the representative institutions that have formed. I don't know how that ultimately impacts his view of the state, but it seems implied by his resignation that he doesn't believe the full implementation of a a state-smashing minimum program would be possible. But that's not anything that he says explicitly to my knowledge. You see the problem there. This is what Lenin is getting at, that there is this weird lacuna here for some a theorist so strong as Kautsky. How could this be so underthought? How are you going to implement something? And this is actually something that um, Marx and Engels critique about the SPD's Gotha program and um, the Erfurt program is, okay, you're, you know, you're not in a republic. You have some Republican demands, how do you expect to implement them without violence? You can't say that, but you should be thinking it, right? You know that, right? On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. <laughs>